0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Omicron wave has crested in many parts of the world, including Denmark and Netherlands, where restrictions are being lifted. World markets, however, worry about more inflation as China implements more severe lockdowns that are going to impact global supply chains. Russia is expected to make good on its threats to invade Ukraine again. Boris Johnson faces rising calls to resign, and Airbus and Boeing have posted order and delivery figures. Fourth quarter earnings for U.S. companies will be posted next week, including Boeing. Since the start of the pandemic, at least 850,000 Americans and some 5.5 million worldwide have died. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, in Washington, D.C. Everybody, welcome. Thanks very much for joining us. That's great to be here, Vago. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us, Vago. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Vago. Uh, thanks very, very much. Indeed, it's a, it's a great day to uh, reflect on a whole uh, a bunch of uh, things that we could all be doing as Americans. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And please be sure to catch up on our interviews from the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium last week, where our coverage was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Missiles and Defense. Aside from our interviews, check out our Caviships Ships podcast, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavas, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who took their weekly podcast daily. Don't miss it. And also check out the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, welcome back Uh, again. Ron, start us off on market performance and drivers uh, on defense, commercial aviation, and space uh, stocks, uh, certainly as uh, Omicron peaks, right? So we have almost as much ahead of us as now we have behind us.
1: Yeah, it was broadly um, uh, quite a good week for the whole group, um, if you look at the, you know, the, the large capitalization names, you know, you Boeing, uh, Lockheed Martin, L3 Harris, I mean, they were up anywhere from call it three to 5%, you know, 4%, 4% plus or minus percent. Um, so the group, you know, broadly did well on a week where both the S&P uh, and the Dow were, uh, were essentially flat. Uh, we've been going through a period because of, you know, you know inflation fears and rate fears that, there's this uh, seeming rotation from growth to value. We'll, we'll see if there's follow through and how that all plays out. But you know, so far year to date, and then this week in particular, um, you know, A and D has been doing, doing quite well. Another thing, you know, we've been tracking. Uh, we track weekly is the ten-year yield as a, kind of an indicator of you know what's going on in interest rate markets. Um, and then it's just you know just a just a hair below one point eight percent. Uh, Bank of America is now looking for the 10-year yield by the end of the year to be at 2%. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see where that goes. But it, it seems like the market is adjusting for you know, the Fed raising rates maybe three to four times. Uh, and, and then we'll see where we go from there. But um, that's where it, the, the market seems to be settling in right now.
0: Um, and I want to go and get everybody's take on the stories of the week that you guys found most interesting. But Sash, give us a sense uh, from a European markets uh, and world markets perspective uh, more broadly.
2: European markets actually ended the week very, very well. I mean, it, you know, pretty much every stock we cover was was up on the week. Interestingly, the two laggards were Airbus and Rolls Royce, but they've had a very, very strong uh, month overall. So I think there's just a bit of profit taking there. You know, if you look at Airbus, Airbus was off yeah, a tiny amount. Rolls-Royce off about a percent and a half, but on a month, Rolls-Royce is up 10%, Airbus is up uh, over 12%. So um, it's very difficult to work out whether the market is just more optimistic about growth um, or whether it's actually picking particular winners and losers. Defence stocks had a very good week in Europe. Uh, Rheinmetall up uh, 7%, Leonardo up six percent Thales up 4%. Uh, ba systems up to uh you know uh turn up uh, sort of three and a half percent so it was a it was a good week for for the defense stocks but you know the, the civil space stocks are doing okay as well i think you know general uh, it's the optimism about uh the omicron variant uh, being you know probably starting to tip over it so uh, that's certainly how it feels here in the uk and economic growth if not in the first quarter because clearly there's going to be a hell of a lot of disruption in the first quarter but Thereafter looking okay. Um, it's probably, you know, g- gave a pretty good end to the week and actually, you know, start to this week here in, in Europe and uh, Far East markets.
0: Uh, Richard, I want to bring you into this. I mean, I don't want to lead the uh, audience, but Airbus and Boeing posted uh, delivery and order uh, information. Obviously, next week, we're going to see what uh, the financial performance of American companies are going to be with fourth quarter uh, earnings and European companies are going to report as well uh, in terms of their 21 figures. From, From your standpoint, what were the big needle moving stories of the week?
3: Well, I think, you know, first of all, hooray, uh, we had a measurable book-to-bill ratio. You know, you look back at the previous year, and it was the first year in the history of jet aviation that it wasn't measurable because the worst orders were negative. This year, it wasn't one-to-one, sad. But um, on the other hand, hey, I'll take it. I think it came in at about uh, 0.7. And um, that shows that there is order activity out there. And of course, that takes into account cancellations. So we now have something resembling a healthy market, or at least a market that is not Terribly unhealthy the way it was in 2020. Um, in terms of uh, orders, Boeing didn't do bad. You know, I mean, we've been saying for years if it's the Max eight, it's doing just fine. Uh, in terms of deliveries, of course, it was a disaster for Boeing, uh, and still a lack of explanation about what the hell is happening with the seven eight seven, and uh, you know why they only got about halfway to their delivery plan of seven thirty seven Maxes that had already been built but not delivered. Uh, so, waiting for some explanation and what their plans are, and whether they can still get to rate 31 on the 737 Max new build program, and of course when they'll resume uh, delivery of the 787s. About a hundred of them in inventory, um, but Airbus did very well in orders too, of course, heavily with 220 and 321 Neo, especially continuing its uh, its rather remarkable march to gaining them a whole bunch of points in market share, courtesy of that very strong mid market. That's what stuck out.
2: What struck me about the Airbus numbers was this is about as normal a set of December orders and deliveries, as Airbus has had in a very, very long time. Uh, You know, quite a lot of orders, quite a lot of deliveries, but nothing, um, uh, you know, nothing that that looked as if they were being incredibly, um, uh, you know, uh, really pushing things uh, in December. Sometimes in December, you get the feeling that they've had people working all the way through Christmas, all the way through the week up to the uh, New Year, just to sort of squeeze those last deliveries out. Um, didn't feel like that this year. Um, I thought what was quite interesting about the um, orders as well is I think the Airbus was trying very hard on orders. Uh, they had big flag carrier orders from Air France, KLM, one hundred and four aircraft, Qantas up to one hundred and thirty-four aircraft that they announced in December. Didn't put them in the year-end orders and uh, orders and deliveries. Um, and you know that just says to us. Um, They had a book to bill of 0.3, sorry, 0.83 net, that's fine, backlog of uh, just under 7,100 aircraft. I think Airbus is remarkably relaxed uh, about how 2021 went. They are clearly more concerned about 2022 because they just don't know what the impact of Omicron is going to be in the first quarter, what the impact in particular on the supply chain uh, of Um, you know, unscheduled, unexpected workforce vacancies and the degree to which that just sort of ripples all the way through. Um, Otherwise, you know, just, you know, as Richard said, A321, 43% of all A320 NEO deliveries, uh, up from 41% in 2020. But it's 59% of the entire Airbus A320 backlog. Um, So in our view, that's the middle of the market battle one. Uh, You know, they've done it, they've got there. And... Um, you know, does anybody care about the A three hundred and nineteen anymore?
0: I, I certainly don't, Richard. Th- there isn't a global market segment that the Chinese are not important to, and right now, in the wake of uh, Omicron and the Chinese overreaction to it, some uh, would say is is likely to have global supply chain impacts. What is that going to mean uh, for commercial aerospace in particular, from your standpoint?
3: You know, you're exactly right that there isn't a segment on the planet in the in the world economy that isn't impacted by the Chinese supply chain. But uh, if if there's something close to that, it's probably commercial aerospace, you know, they've never achieved anything resembling serious relevance in commercial aerospace supply chains, Uh, you know, last, uh, Last time we looked at it, it was a 17 to one ratio in the aerospace trade balance between the US and China. You know, I mean, and I think most smart supply chain managers have long since de-risked the picture by having either healthy stockpiles, alternative sources, or whatever else. I'm sure, however, that there'll be an exception here and there. And that's of course, you know, something to watch for and something to be concerned about uh possibly more for airbus but possibly not you know when it came to airbus investing in china a lot of it went into the tianjin Faco, which i think is pretty independent it doesn't produce structures that go into other the three other facos. so i'm not terribly uh terribly concerned but on the other hand that doesn't mean there won't be surprises and meanwhile you know on the mro front they do play a larger role A lot of that is internal. And of course, a lot of it is less critical to the production ramp, but still something you have to watch for.
0: Ron, do you want to take a bite uh, on Chinese uh, supply chains or uh, do you want to talk about some of the news flow and your concerns and issues about ESG investing, which is uh, environment uh, sustainment, as well as uh, governance issues? And uh, what's happened to the special purpose acquisition companies and SPACs that, especially in eVTOL, have taken a hit?
1: Yeah. So maybe uh, just to touch on a couple things on uh, the Chinese supply chain question, I guess I, I worry more about just the Chinese economy um, and a point that Richard has brought up in the past uh, that it, before COVID, you know, the Chinese demand for aircraft had, had slowed down and something was going on in the Chinese economy. So um, as, you, as you look at China and if the Chinese economy is slowing down and there's evidence that they're up that uh, because of everything that happened in the the Chinese real estate market last year, and then you combine that with you know, uh, you know, kind of a forced slowdown in the supply chain because of you know COVID in China, um, what's the ability of China to absorb airplanes, right? I mean, one of the, the bullish cases on um, the narrow body market, particularly for Boeing, is that China is gonna be able to absorb a lot of 737s. And if things are going slower in China, that won't be the case. So I'm more worried about that maybe secondary issue than just the, the supply chains directly. Um, when you look at uh, ESG, it's an interesting thing. Um, and and, and, and it would be interested to get Sasha's point of view on his side of the Atlantic, because my sense is it's, it could potentially be more meaningful there than in the U.S. But when you look at um, yeah, you know, ESG investing in environmental social governance considerations, um, a lot of times companies that make weapons are just by the nature of what they do, independent of how they do it. Um, it can be something that investors look at. My sense is so far um, you know, on this side of the Atlantic, it might be a factor, but it's not huge. Um, that you know, there's more, you know, there's more weight put on how they do what they do, maybe as opposed to exactly what they do. So that's to say, for example, if you're Northrop Grumman, Northrop Grumman, uh, their top leadership has uh, you know a level of diversity that's, you know, from an ESG perspective, good. Um, but but then, then broadly, I mean, they, they make intercontinental ballistic missiles, right? So you have to be comfortable with that. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a factor in the market that's playing out. And so I, I think it's something to keep an eye on. And then the last point on the, um, the, the companies that de last year, I mean, it was a really, really tough week for them. And, and that might be part of this technical thing going on in the market where we are seeing some rotation from growth into value. When you think about companies that are very early stage, by definition, they're growth companies, and some of the performance, of some of them was really, really, you know, eye poppingly poor this past week. Um, right. You know, Archer Aviation was down fifteen percent. Joby was down ten percent. Uh, Virgin Galactic, who announced a a secondary of a convert that's about of, of about five hundred million dollars in value, it was down almost twenty percent in one day. That was just on on uh, on Friday. Um, Astrospace was down ten percent. Rocket Lab was down four um, percent. So you've seen, you know, those those equities get hit really hard in this market rotation.
0: Sash, uh, your your take on all this, and and Richard, I want to give a give you a, a bite. But before we get there, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L three Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. Go ahead, uh, Sash.
2: Picking up on uh, Ron's point on ESG, he's absolutely right. Uh, it's uh, it's arguably way more important in investment terms uh, here in Europe. And there's a couple of reasons for that, but many of them uh, revolve around the European Union and the degree to which the, the so-called EU taxonomy is uh, shaping how investors are, uh, or think about their investments and actually how they are directed to invest, and particularly you know public pension funds and corporate pension funds and so forth. And the EU taxonomy, which is being debated incredibly intensely by uh, a number of countries, Um, generally with France on one side and most of the rest of the EU on the other. And that's because France has got a huge domestic defense industry and most other countries don't. But the EU taxonomy is shaping how investors think about defense. But more importantly, arguably, it's shaping how lenders think about defense companies. And one of the things that worries investors, and we've had a lot of calls about this here, uh, has been uh, what happens if banks stop lending to European defence companies? Now, our view is, actually, European defence companies are generally, particularly the big ones, strong enough that they can go and um, uh, raise money from the bond market. But it, it's a very interesting mark of how concerned investors have started to get, that they're worried about capital drying up. And we've also talked to a number of European-based companies, using Europe in its geographic sense, or in political sense, who are concerned that their share prices are Um, lagging um, because, you know, there seem to be not terribly ESG compliant. Now, whether that's nuclear weapons, it certainly isn't the real controversial weapons, chemical, biological, uh, white phosphorus, landmines. I mean, those are none of the companies we uh, we look at make those anymore. But, you know, nuclear weapons uh, or ballistic missiles, as Ron points out, and then the things that launch them, whether that's the aircraft or the submarines, are genuinely gray areas for a lot of investors at the moment, and gray areas tend to get excluded out. So um, just to give an example of how important ESG is, uh, somebody that I know extremely well, who advises a huge range of very, very large pension funds um, has you know, been very, very clear that for the last 18 months, the only money that they have been directing into, uh, new investments into has been ESG compliant uh, funds. And that's, a, that's got to be a concern for defence. And ultimately, I think governments are going to have to stand up and say, we will backstop defence companies in terms of their sources of funding. And we will, um, if necessary, probably force investors to recognise that companies that behave legally uh, and are doing what, what governments want are, you know, have got to be treated as being acceptable uh, investments. So I think it's going to be a very, very interesting situation there.
0: Richard, do you do you want to weigh into that before we move on with the rest of the conversation?
2: Um, I would
3: uh, actually take it. From you a do a little bit better. of
0: a dance on Evie Tall Spacks. <laughs> <pancaking. laughs> How did you know? You wanna, yeah, did you I'll know? do the end zone spike. Here, we're going real sports analogy uh, on the, on this show. Go ahead, go ahead, do your little. Thanks so much, dance but I'm not.
3: I, I, am, I am totally not here to beat up on yeah, I mean, I am, but I'm not. Um, the point is that ESG, I look at it from another angle, which is that I think it's driving investment towards uh, that AAM, UAM, spec and whatever bubble, or at least it did before these things started to collapse. I think in the initial round of investments might just have been pumped up by people looking at an ESG play and i asked an investment professional about this it was like when you look at esg because you know i know people who are concerned about esg when you look at esg do you think of things like aviation decarbonization yes absolutely does that include battery-powered urban air mobility type things well of course so it could be that you've got this very horrible ironic whatever term you want to use Diversion of cash that was intended for you know something ESG towards you know uh, rotorcraft services for the wealthy just because they purportedly play some role that I cannot see in aviation decarbonization.
0: And anyone want to weigh into that before we move on?
1: Maybe a, a couple perspectives. Um, one on ESG and defense, and, and maybe this is the out of consensus view, but ultimately um, countries broadly, maybe not all, but. Uh, a lot of the, the countries with markets that uh, investors generally are active in invest in defense to not use the weapons, right? I mean, so uh, you know, investing in defense is largely around promoting peace. And I think the ESG definition or the folks that get uncomfortable with companies that make weapons take too simple of a view. So that's a one guy's opinion. Two, when you think about, and I'll get on my soapbox for a second, so forgive me, but you know, our industry on the commercial aviation side has been ESG sensitive since the Wright Brothers' first flight, an industry that is all about flying farther, flying longer, um, by definition, has been about flying more efficiently, burning less fuel and being lighter and flying farther. Um, So sometimes I get a little bent out of shape about this whole uh, ESG thing and the decarbonization of aviation. Aviation since the first flight has been all about doing it more efficiently and always will be, right? So... Um, I don't know. I, I, I think sometimes, you know, it, it, the sensitivity about ESG and, and commercial aviation is misplaced given the gains this industry has
0: made in terms of efficiency and will continue to make going forward. Um, I, I want to uh, second that, right? I mean, there are people who talk about ESG and are comfortable with uh, cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrencies consume actually more energy uh, than, uh, aviation, uh, does right. Uh, a point that Alex Dijunjak, who was the IATA boss, um, you know, always used to point out, uh, at the end of the day, anyway, uh, give give an opportunity for go go ahead, uh, Sasha. And then I want to move on. I want to get your take, um, uh, very briefly on the whole Boris Johnson affair, but more importantly, how, uh, Russia's impending invasion of Ukraine is, is actually really, changing European security in a very meaningful way and probably faster than even Vlad the impaler uh realizes. Yeah, okay. So um I mean just just to, to follow up on Ron's points, so I, I agree with him
2: on one and I disagree on the other. Um on defense, I am completely with him on that. I just think that the defense companies are going to have to do a better job of explaining why it is that what they do is is all about preserving peace. And actually it's about preserving stable functioning You know, really high quality democracies, which is exactly what ESG fanatics, because some of them are, should be wanting in the first place. I worry in civil aerospace that a huge amount of the benefit that the civil aerospace industry has delivered in terms of fuel economy has gone to making uh, ticket prices lower and hence generating very, very high levels of growth rather than reducing the overall economic uh, or the, the overall emissions burden. I think the most interesting thing that we're going to look at in the next 20 years is going to be how to juggle ticket prices, growth, emissions to get to net zero or somewhere close-ish to it. And I think aviation will be the last big generator of CO2, um, but as long as it's the last one, then uh, that's still pretty positive. But it it does worry me that uh, uh, to date, a lot of the benefits have been given back in terms of uh, greater growth rather than reduced emissions.
0: And um, uh, let's get your take uh, on Russia, Ukraine, uh, Sweden, right? I mean, just an enormous number of changes. I mean, if Vladimir Putin had wanted to organize Europe and NATO against him and prompt countries like Sweden and Finland to actually want to join NATO, I don't think he could have done a better job if he'd wanted to, unless that is what he's trying to do, right? I mean, authoritarians always need a very strong external uh, foe, right? Soviet Union, uh, played uh, to that concern, right? That outsiders are trying to uh, meddle in our affairs, and then use use that to justify every every plot, conspiracy, and uh, and purge uh, ever executed by the Soviet Union, right? I mean, so to an extent, he needs that. Uh, but but sort of give us your sense on how European security is changing in the wake of this, and and changing rapidly, in fact. I think if it was
2: just Ukraine, uh, then European. The European defence environment would be changing quite slowly. Um, there has been a fairly concerted attempt to sort of, if not isolate Ukraine, to make you know to make it clear Ukraine is a special case. It is a, geographically peripheral to political Europe. It is not a member of NATO and not likely to be a, be a member of NATO. What has changed in the last uh, week, though, a couple of weeks, has been the degree to which the uh, Russian reinforcement. Uh, of its forces around Ukraine and they are reinforcing at a level which as a former soldier I find astonishing I mean boy the Russians do uh, mobilization and reinforcement like nobody else can do it at the moment and the degree to which they're bringing in forces from the far east military district that's not something we've seen in in decades but it's the degree to which that is now having repercussions right up into the Baltic so as you rightly point out Finland and Sweden who are both neutral countries are have gone on the record and said we've reserved the right to join NATO. Um, they don't want to, and you could argue that they're joining NATO almost. You know, triggers the Russians to do the Russians to do something even more stupid and aggressive. But um, uh, it, it's causing political disruption there. The Baltic states are panicking. Let's be absolutely honest about that. The most interesting example, though, militarily, was the Swedish reinforcement of the island of Gotland this week. Gotland was effectively demilitarized after the end of the Berlin Wall. It's an island which, when you look at it, that's the island everybody in the Baltic wants to own. If you own Gotland and have it militarized, it makes Kaliningrad very difficult for the Russians, very difficult to sustain. Or if the Russians have Gotland, it makes the Baltic states totally unsustainable. Um, And... Uh, Sweden has just realized that having it demilitarized and everybody um, you know running around having picnics there is just not a uh, you know it, it, that's not something you can get away with anymore interestingly, how did they reinforce it? They took aircraft from the uh nato uh, heavy airlift wing c seventeens and um uh, flew forces there and so Gotland has now got um Uh, an infantry battalion plus for the first time ever. That'll go up to a brigade strength at least. And it's got air defenses for the first time ever. And it's the prime site for Sweden put the Patriot missile systems in when they finally take delivery of those. This is remilitarization like we have not seen in the Baltic for a long time. Um, And that plus the, uh, you know, various undersea cables being uh, cut is really starting to alarm European nations. And, you know, can't do European defense stocks that much harm either.
0: Uh, and, uh, and obviously, right, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, Sweden is one of the most strategic players in the region, uh, and uh, why um, the, the country had such a formidable military capability, run. Right? I mean, I think people fail to realize the Swedish Air Force was something like the world's fourth or fifth largest Air Force. Uh, and, and the Swedish army was massive during the Cold War, uh, it, it, it in part, uh, for, for all of those reasons. Uh, Richard, let me give you a, a bite at this apple, right? Because you guys took your summer vacation last year on Gotland. Uh, you were kind enough to send me this great uh, picture of all manner of, of warnings uh, about military exercise areas, very thoughtfully and very Swedishly written in both English as well as Swedish, <laughs> to make it easy for everybody to follow along. But but uh, go ahead and give us your sense on that. And, and Ron, um, want your sense as well on how this uh, changes uh, the global security dynamic, because yeah, I, mean, I think we're all agreed that from an ESG perspective, I've looked at National security investment as as nothing but a positive thing. I understand people may be squeamish about mines. Okay, they're they're not making mines anymore, uh, or most most folks aren't, even though there's real military utility, sadly, uh, to mines. The question is, how do we better remediate and clean up areas that have been, uh, or use smart technology maybe for for us to address that bit of the challenge? But but go ahead, uh, Richard, and then uh, Ron want to get your sense as well.
3: Yeah, you know, it's um, it was something. I took a couple of days to bike around Gotland and, uh, and you know, you run into these areas. i which are as you say, they're very thoughtfully laid out. Uh, you know, only come here during the following months when we will not be doing live fire exercises in the zone, uh, which, I, yeah, very thoughtful. Uh, glad it was in English. Glad I didn't speak uh, a third language that they didn't cover. But anyway, uh, to me, it, it's... It's emblematic of what's going on in entire Central and Eastern Europe, and boy, so much relevance for NATO, um, and you know, frankly, excellent from norms market perspective. One thing that happened this week is that Boeing started bulking up its uh, German presence, probably because if, if there is a chance they actually will be getting super hornet and Growler orders, it's in this strategic environment that maybe the Germans will actually be doing a bit more, they're part of NATO. Um, Here on the U.S. home front is going to be really interesting on a political level, because, of course, you know, Donald Trump, when he was president, by all accounts, pretty much anyone affiliated on the national security front thought that he was trying to get out of NATO. Uh, So is that going to be an issue? And will Trump, if he runs again in 2024, come out and say, yes, circumstances have changed. I am now for NATO. Or will this be an issue that causes a bit of a crisis of confidence in the Western alliance? This is something I think politically to watch as a kind of referendum on can we stick together against this pretty clear and present threat. Uh, So there's a lot going on here and I expect it's got years, which is better for better or worse, probably very good from a defense standpoint uh, in a defense industry standpoint.
0: Um, I should I should point out, right? I mean, there was a lot of bipartisan consensus, including among Republicans, uh, and why, for example, they uh, passed legislation that would prevent, you know, even even if a decision had been made to leave NATO, that the United States would not be able to spend money to actually leave the NATO alliance, right? I mean, so that uh, right. stays on the book. Uh, obviously, it, it would depend, right? I mean, the Republican Party today is is even different than what it was uh, in 2019 in terms of uh, how it, how it looks at certain matters. Uh, let's put it that way. So it would, it would certainly be interesting, uh, to see whether or not that would be, you know, w- whether there would be bipartisan consensus on that, uh, going, going forward run. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, just to follow up on Richard's point, I mean, it, it, that, you know, I think one of the byproducts of
1: this is, um, and you know, what's going on in, in NATO, particularly on the Russian frontier is, uh, more demand for military products, both European and U S. So things that, you know, know, come to mind are, you know, the F-35s in Finland. uh, And there's been a lot of discussion about, uh, for example, Poland or the Czech Republic buying Abrams tanks, uh, among other things, right? And uh, you can imagine uh, more desire for uh, Patriot missile systems and so on and so forth could fall out of this. So, you know, ultimately for, you know, for the, you know, the defense industry, this is yet another, you know, area for, at least for the U.S. contractors for foreign military
0: sales. Uh, richard let me uh jump to you uh we we didn't discuss japan's uh decision to update its uh f15 uh, j uh, fleet right 155 planes boeing got that contract uh, and clearly shows that there were tremendous opportunities still for that jet and still for for boeing let's let's briefly take a look at the you know sort of the asian market what this deal means and 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 sash uh whether european contractors are actually going to benefit from, from some uh, investment in the Indo-Pacific uh, from a modernization, right? I mean, France is is a player and is making clearer. And in, in indeed, there isn't an American briefing that doesn't go by where somebody senior doesn't immediately raise France's important role in the region, right? Whether that's a, in the aftermath of AUKUS uh, or being, you know, nice to Paris, or actually it being serious uh, at a time when France is now uh, the, in the presidency of the EU and, and is expected to push a much more Indo-Pacific agenda uh, as well. We want to get very quickly your, your two takes on that. And, and Ron, I want to bring it home with Do- uh, Downfall, uh, the movie uh, about the documentary uh or or the or the piece about the 737 uh issue uh and boeing uh is debuting at sundance and i want to get your your take on on, on that um go, go ahead uh richard sash and and then ron in that order
3: yeah on the japan front you know talk about a fantastic market you know uh they're in the front lines very much defense spending has been going up at a steady clip for the first time in a while in japan and uh, they have a requirement for 300-and-something jets, uh, 147 of which are accounted for by the F-35A and B order. Um, that leaves another 150-something. Um, upgrading the F-15 fleet is certainly uh, a way of you know pushing off that budgetary crunch a little bit and probably a smart move because it's a very capable fleet, very capable plane, as you say. You can't rule out more F-15s, you certainly can't, you know, if they don't want to spend the 20 or $30 billion non-recurring needed to create the proposed F-3 um, and, you know, the F-22 was obviously not available to them, um, then you could even regard the F-15 as having a EX model as having a really great chance. I mean, it's got this kind of time to climb high altitude. Long-range performance that uh, they might find attractive given the strategic environment, um, but you know, right now, of course, they're going to put this off. This requirement, the second track of their fighter recapitalization requirement, off for a few years with this upgrade program. Uh, but you know, you could regard it as a really good way for Boeing <clears throat> to keep in their good graces.
0: Sash,
2: France is—you're absolutely right. France is is remarkably strong in Indo-Pacific terms, particularly the Indo bit. You know, French defense sales to uh, India have been uh, consistently strong. They're currently delivering uh, Rafales to India. My bet will be there'll be at least one more uh, batch of Rafales for India, possibly even a batch of the Indian Navy as well. That's a very, very close. And, and of course, the Scorpion submarines. Um, the further east you go, the more sporadic it is. But I would, you know, I, I, I think France will continue to try to uh, export Rafales. Warships, you know, variants of frem and so forth. Submarines, uh, more likely conventional than uh, than SSNs. Um, I would, uh, I, I'd be very careful about saying this is part of France's presence of the EU. Presidency of the EU is a six-month rotating thing. You can't do a great deal uh, during that time, and you certainly can't do a great deal in terms of uh, EU defense. Uh, stuff with a six-month presidency, it's actually going to be much more focused, I suspect, on recovery from coronavirus and spending there. Um, If you look at the UK, the interesting thing about the UK, and probably one of the things we should have talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, and picking up from what Richard said, uh, F3, if as that happens, uh, the UK clearly thinks that Japan is going to Look at some sort of associate relationship with the UK led Tempest program. There's now been a uh, deal signed between the UK and Japan uh, to co develop a fighter engine, um, clearly for F3 and also for Tempest. Now, whether that goes all the way towards the reaction engines um, uh, derived uh, technology that is clearly being considered for Tempest, I, I don't know. But that's a very interesting. Ah, uh, deepening of the uh, technological relationship there, and I suspect that a lot of Tempest systems, as well, clearly as the Meteor missile, where where there's a, an Anglo-Japanese relationship, um, I think that that will that that will continue to deepen, frankly.
0: It's worth pointing out, right, that uh, the Eurofighter gang and BAE Systems, in particular, was uh, very excited. Uh, that, uh, that uh, Japan at some point would have bought the Eurofighter uh, before we were, you know, at, at the early, f- when, when uh, Japan was uh, competing uh, the Eurofighter, certainly against the F-35 uh, in terms of the requirement. Uh, but there was always this sense that a, a high-altitude Uh, interceptor with a lot of air-to-air capability would be something that the uh, Japanese would move toward as an eventual replacement for the F-15 rather than keeping the F-15 in service. Although the airplane is an air superiority beast, uh, certainly uh, in its uh, more current um, uh, EX uh, iteration.
2: I I mean, I've I've got to say, I think think Eurofighter was an unbelievably long shot for Japan. If you look at the F-3 specification, the F-3 requirements, it is eerily close to what was being considered for the Tornado F3, i.e., the air defense variant, and right. exactly the long range interceptor, um, missile carrier, huge radar capability that, that was um, designed into uh, Tornado F3, you know, thick end of 40 years ago.
0: Uh, Yes. But but, uh, right. I mean, it was it was interesting how the Japanese did that competition. We can get more into that uh, at some other time. Right. But I mean, there was this sense that what it is they really needed was something that was a air defense uh, airplane, as opposed to what it is they bought, which was a sophisticated ground attack airplane, but they solved their carrier aviation question. Anybody who, you know, folks have not been paying attention to the methodical track the Japanese are taking to get back to big deck aircraft carrier. And we've got about a minute left, Ron, I want to go to you. Obviously, on this program, we've talked uh, infinitum on the 737 MAX uh, issue, uh, and some of the mistakes uh, that were made there, uh, although the airplane is still, you know, a good airplane and can serve market needs as long as the company has addressed uh, its shortfalls with it. We don't know very much about this documentary, whether or not it's going to be a fair take or a hatchet job. Uh, give, give us your your sense on what the aftermath of this is going to be once it debuts uh, at Sundance.
1: Yeah, we'll see. Ultimately, right? I mean, it's just interesting that <clears throat> yet another another uh, documentary is coming out. It's going to, as you mentioned, it's going to uh, come out. Uh, it's going to get its first um, play uh, this Friday at, at Sundance. Um, so, so we'll see. Uh, you know, hopefully it gives uh, the world just maybe a, a thorough view about what happened. Uh, I mean, this really you know, sadly was one of the big stories in aviation outside of, of COVID uh, over the last several years. So, um, so for those out there, film enthusiasts who uh, want to see it, um, it, it, it should be out there. I, I think it's going to be released actually on Netflix at some point, uh, but it'll, it'll premiere on Friday.
0: Everybody. Thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And look forward to having you guys back on uh, again next week. In the meantime, have a great, uh, have a great week. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Vago. Yeah. I really appreciate you doing this, Vago. Thank you.